I invite you this morning, have a copy of God's Word there available to you, back to Peter's first letter, 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 9 and 10. As we continue to look at 1 Peter under the theme, Faithful Living in Fearful Times, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And our Father, in these moments now, help us that we hear this, your word, rightly. Open our minds and hearts. Do your work in us that we so desperately, desperately need. We trust in you, Father. We ask for this help now. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think oftentimes believers suffer from something of an identity crisis. We're not exactly sure who and what we are, and as the result of that, we're sometimes not even sure how to act then. Of course, there are folks around who are glad to render an opinion for you about your identity and your actions. The problem is we sort through all kinds of advice that turns out to be cultural and either partially true or absolutely false. Trying to sort through what we hear around us and then to understand the text, find what is biblical and eternal. You see, we look around and we come to erroneous conclusions. A group of anthropologists was fascinated at an agrarian tribal group who plowed the ground in straight lines, except every so often they deviate and then go back to the straight line. And so they thought there must be something fascinating for the reason. After much research, they made the discovery. The practice had begun many years before when there were many large stumps in the field. The stumps weren't there anymore. But every so often, they'd do a deviation like there was. There are times we're not sure why we do what we do. We've all laughed, at times cringed over what some have called the seven last words of the church, but we've never done it that way before. We don't ponder very deeply. The matter of identity, especially in these days of extraordinary confusion, affects so much about our lives and our practice. 
It impacts how you view living your life, how you see your spouse, your family, your friends, your church, even your worship. Why, why do we worship? What is it that we're doing here? I know that there are times when visitors and maybe even members have questions about our liturgy. Yes, you can use the word liturgy in a Baptist church. It can be done. Now, Baptists are more comfortable if you find a Greek word for that somewhere. Liturgia. Does that make you feel a little better? See, every church has liturgy, folks. Even churches without liturgy have liturgy. The lack of liturgy is their liturgy. Their spontaneity, ostensibly, is the liturgy. For decades, Baptist churches' morning worship services were basically oriented around and styled upon larger evangelistic crusades. That was what the morning service was. It was a small-scale version of the large-scale crusade. And so everything was oriented around getting that decision at the end of the service. We even added something to liturgy that had never been there before. We called it the invitation. And we even had a class of music for it, the invitation hymn. And if you went to evangelistic conferences, as I did when I was a younger fellow and uh, would attend these things, you would hear sermons on personal witnessing, training to do that, which I thought was all very good. But almost inevitably, every conference would have something on an evangelistic sermon, how to preach one. And then secondly, and I think as I looked at it as an 18, 19, 20-year-old, I almost thought more importantly, everybody was saying you need to do the invitation right. If you don't do the invitation well, then good things won't happen. And so there would be separate sermons, separate seminars, separate instruction on how to give an effective invitation which included things as much as how to give subtle verbal cues to the musicians to let them know what song you had selected as you were preaching that they sing, and how to train your musicians so they would know when to play, when not to play, how loud to play, how soft to play, how to train your counselors and how to time the counselors coming forward so that it influenced those who might make a decision for Jesus to come forward. Now, we haven't the time for me to explain all the problems associated with that. Let me say this very clearly. We want people to come to Jesus. Right? That is our longing, that is a desire that is vitally important. It's why we do missions. It's why we encourage you to speak the truth. It's why this text, partly the reason this text exists, we want people to come to saving faith in Jesus. But folks, what we ended up doing in many ways was bankrupting the worship of the church in the name of getting people saved. And we wondered why our kids often grew up not wanting these things and confused about things. Like I've shared with you, you know, at one time there was a statistic that something like 60 to 80 percent of all converts to Mormonism 
and all converts to Jehovah's Witnesses were former Baptists. 60 to 80%. Now, let me let you on a little secret why that was. We told people, believe the Bible. We never bothered to tell them what it actually said. We never taught them. And then somebody came along and tried to explain to them wrongly what it said. Please understand, we should never be indifferent to evangelism, but as we worship the Lord, we do so as a gathering of believers. Unbelievers see, hear, and we hope and we faithfully believe and pray that by the work of the Spirit of God, they hear and the Lord opens minds and hearts. And to quote Paul from 1 Corinthians 14, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Wow. Would that not look like a curiosity in many of our churches? For an unbeliever to simply cry out, the Lord is here, and fall on their face in saving worship. We should always be ready as believers to help someone seeking to understand the gospel and their, their response to it. But folks, our worship is not primarily about getting a response from unbelievers. It's primarily about believers responding to our gracious triune God. See, if we're wrong about our identity, we'll be wrong about our worship and we'll be wrong about our purpose. We won't understand what's going on. Your new identity creates your worship. Who you have been made in Christ is the beginning and the outflow of worship. Peter begins with new identity here. You are. And then a four-part list. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. The descriptors that Peter uses here are directly the language of the Old Testament about Israel. And yet Peter takes that language and he opens it up and applies it to uncircumcised Gentiles who have believed in this Messiah, Jesus Christ the Lord. He's not making a distinction anymore between national Israel and Gentiles. The language applies across the board. And what language? Chosen people. The electing love of God is sometimes questioned because it's not understood. And there are other times the electing love of God is hated because it is understood. I remember one brother telling about preaching about election. And one of his members, some, some got upset, and they challenged, and they had discussions and arguments, but one fellow came to him and said, well, I'm leaving the church. 
They said, brother, you don't have to agree with me. about. Oh, no, no, that's not, I don't have any question. You're exactly right. That's what the Bible says, but I hate it. I don't belong here. Well, sometimes that can be a stunner, can it? You see, the wonder, my friends, is not that God chose some. Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. The wonder is not that God chose some. It is that he chose any. Our attitude about election tells us more about our view of God and our view of ourselves than virtually anything else. God needs to get on board with me. I'm sovereign. I'll decide if I follow Jesus. Well, my friend, you will decide by the grace and kindness of God, yes. But the deciding did not begin with you. Chosen people. God's love is not motivated by us. God's love is His own pleasure. Christian, you're chosen. Don't get cocky. You didn't do anything to get it. Remember your role in this whole thing, in your salvation. Here's your part. To run as far, far and as fast and as hard as you could away from the Lord. And his job was to run faster and catch you. You're a royal priesthood. Now this is stunning, is it not? Gentiles were banned from the temple. They could come into the, the temple of the, the, the court of the Gentiles, but that's as close as they could come. And Peter takes that language and he says, you're not just part of the people of God, that is you can get into the court, you're actually part of the priesthood, you can go into the holy of holies, and oh by the way, while we're at it, you're kings, you're royal, you're on par with David, royal priesthood. This is why I had us read what we did in the response of reading. No longer strangers and aliens, Ephesians 2. Fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. My friend, you are made part of that people who enter the very presence of God. Whenever the veil of the temple split top to bottom, when Christ had cried out, it is finished, the path to God was laid open through the body of Jesus Christ. That's why there are no specific priests anymore. All God's people are priests. And we're all part of the royal family. Again, your identity. Holy nation. Hear this well, Christian. You became part of a holy nation not by becoming an Israelite nor moving to any specific place in the world, but simply by being Christ's. Now, I'm going to give you just a little quick thing here. Have you all noticed something? Politics really shows up a lot 
in our culture. Has anybody picked that up besides, am I alone in that? It just, everything seems to be about politics. And everybody is very busily choosing sides. And I, t- I got to tell you, the, the wit, the wisdom, the intellectual depth, the nuance that one finds on social media is enough to make you sit in a corner and weep. The stunning ignorance, the staggering hubris, the arrogance. Oh, let you know something. Friend, your primary citizenship is not America. I'm glad to be an American. Do not misunderstand me. But that doesn't even come close to this reality. I'm one of God's people. I'm in his nation. Said it before, I say it again. People ask, what are you politically? I am an unapologetic monarchist. The king reigns. I'm his. What he does is good. I'm with him. Chosen people. Royal priesthood. Holy nation. People belonging to God. (laughs) I belong to somebody. Now, you know, we... We, we are so smart today and so woke that language of belonging makes us nervous. But folks, that's really not meant to be anything other than comforting. Laura belongs to me, I belong to Laura. And I'm not saying she got a good deal out of that. But there is a glorious, godly, right sense of ownership. Not as a Lord and Master, but connection. My children belong to me, and I belong to them as a father. Now, that belonging shifts over time as they mature and become older, but there is a connection that cannot be changed. I, I see, you know, there's some grandkids out there. I'm owned. That's Paul Paul. That's good by me. We ought not be afraid of that. It actually expresses the deepest essence of our relationships. Jack Miller in his little book, and by the way, this is an excellent little book. I'm not even sure this is in print anymore, but if you find it, it's worth your time. It's called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. He said, what then is the basic fundamental nature of the church? To serve itself and its own self-centered interests? Or even, first of all, to serve others? No, its fundamental character is to belong to God. Did you hear that? Its fundamental character is to belong to God. Peter, Peter squelches the idea that the church has a right to exist for its own egocentric interests and comforts. It exists for God, and He in His infinite majesty lives in it as a troubling, transforming, barrier-breaking presence. We are God-possessed, God-separated, God accepted. He has owned us. 
we are his people. A people belonging to God. Christian, I got to tell you, that has to be one of the most comforting things in the whole wide world. As big a mess as we can be, he says, you're mine. You belong to me. Now, that's what we are. But before what we are, what were we? The believer's old identity. He describes it in two ways. Not a people and not received mercy. Now in a moment we'll get to this because it's right out of the book of Hosea. And Hosea is one of those books that troubles us when we read it. <laughs> what in the world is God doing? Hosea married to Gomer. I have a hard time. I try to pronounce it differently. I think there's a Hebrew, Hebrew pronunciation, you can pronounce it Gomer. Every time I hear Gomer, I can't help but default to something else. <laughs> I know, a childhood wasted watching television, but that's just the reality of it. Once we were not a people, we, we had an identity, but it was a bad one, it was a rebellious one. And why didn't that show? James Boyce told the story about sixth grade. He was a sixth grader, and the principal had come in uh, and gave his class a very stern lecture. It had been reported that some students had actually brought firecrackers to school. Now, it was against Pennsylvania state law and definitely against school policy, and any student caught even possessing firecrackers would be expelled. And Boyce said, I didn't own any firecrackers. I hadn't even been thinking about firecrackers. But you know, once a person starts thinking along that line, firecrackers become an intriguing subject. And as I thought about it, I remember one of my friends had some. Well, he and a friend went home for lunch, picked up the firecrackers, and were back at school in 45 minutes. They went into the cloakroom, that's the term he used. That's a walk-in closet, by the way, for folks who aren't fancy. A cloakroom's a walk-in closet. And... Uh, one of them said, now you hold the firecracker by the middle of the fuse and we'll light it and jump out and people will freak out, but if you pinch it tight, it'll go out when it gets to your fingers. They, they really didn't understand how gunpowder works. They lit the fuse, it immediately went down to the guy's fingers and he did what every sane human being does. He dropped it. You cannot imagine how loud a firecracker sounds in an old public school building with high ceilings, marble floors, and plaster walls. Nor can you imagine how quickly a principal can get out of his office, down the hall, and into one of the classrooms. They staggered, deaf, choking, and blinded out of the closet right into the principal. He was as stunned as they were. He explained over and over again to the parents, I just told them not to bring any firecrackers to school. He couldn't believe the rebellion. I can believe the rebellion. Once we were not a people, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Once we had not received mercy. Now, these quotes, not a people and not mercy, come out of Hosea, the first chapter. We're told in Hosea 1.6, she, Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, as is the daughter, no mercy. For I'll no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. In that same first chapter of Hosea, verse 8 and 9, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name 
not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the declaration of judgment. No mercy. Not my people. But even in this, in the second chapter of Hosea, these words, verse 23, and I will sow for her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I'll say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. The Lord purchases by his own blood a people. He shows mercy. He shows kindness. Paul will say in Titus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify to himself a people for his own possession. I like the way Steve Brown put this. Because sin deserves death and we're all sinners. It means that all our mercies are undeserved mercies. Any apparent unfairness in God's treatment of us arises not because some have too much punishment, but because some of us appear to have too little. Mm. None of us will ever receive harsher judgment than we deserve. The marvel is, in the biblical view, not that men die for their sins, but that we remain alive in spite of them. Who we are, who we were, moves us out of what do we do? The believer's new activity. A.W. Tozer made this observation in the 40s or 50s. There are still preachers and teachers who say that Christ died so we'd not drink and not smoke and not go to the theater. No wonder some people are confused. No wonder they fall into the habit of backsliding when such things are held up as reason for salvation. Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on the cross and rose from the grave to make worshipers out of rebels. I like that. He died to make worshipers out of rebels. Notice what Peter says. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, a people that belong to him, that, or in order that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here is your new activity. What is God's purpose in saving you? It is to make you a worshiper. Now, please understand, for Peter, I believe the picture here is actually a two-sided one in many ways. It is both worship and evangelism. You are saved to declare His majesty, His excellencies. The Psalms teach us declaring the praises of God is the great work of worship. Two forms of that praise appear in the Psalms, praising God for what He's done and praising God for who He is. We saw that in the 104th Psalm in the prayer today. It was both worship and praise for who God is and for what He has done. And see, my friend, this is the connection between our worship and our evangelism. We're to declare, proclaim, shout out 
the Lord's excellencies, not just in one place, in one context, but in everything we do. You see, I think some of you, <laughs> you, you struggle over doing evangelism because you think it's mostly about getting people to stop their sinning so they can be made right with God. And that is part of it. But my friends, if you don't hold up something for them more glorious than what they're holding on to now, I'm not sure you get much attention from them. It is more than trying to correct bad behavior. Let's be careful that we don't turn ourselves into some kind of religious moralists. Well, you need to stop doing that. Well, I probably do. But that ain't the problem. The problem is they're in rebellion against God, this glorious, wonderful, gracious God who has provided a way out of damnation through His Son. You want to understand yourself? You want to live a life that is meaningful? You really want to lay hold of what is true and glorious? Believe in Him. Proclaim His excellencies. You know, I, I talked a little bit about worship earlier. And folks, this ought to be what worship is truly about. This is our danger, folks. We, we have a real hard time not being consumers. We really struggle over that. And along with being consumers, we're also critics. And we separate ourselves. And we look out at what's going on. And this is the temptation, I think, from the devil. I really do. Because what we start doing then is, well, I, I just, I, I, it's probably just me. But I really don't like this. Okay. Well, I can't say it's just you, but I can say it's just wicked. What? What? Well, I wish we'd do that. Folks, do you understand this is how we land ourselves in the mess? I go back to what I said before. We are to be monarchists. What the king tells us to do is what we ought to do. Right? He's the king. We're not. So all of it, it ought to be oriented around declaring the excellencies, proclaiming the excellencies of him. Piper put it this way. What does it mean to glorify God? It doesn't mean to make him more glorious. It means to acknowledge his glory and value it above all things and to make it known. He goes on to say, all who cast themselves on God find they're carried into endless joy by God's omnipotent commitment to his own glory. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You see, folks, we don't come here to be critics. Now, please understand, I know there's a balance. It's not that we can't talk about what we do and how things are done. But my friend, are you here primarily as a, a Monday morning quarterback critic of what's done, or are you here to meet and worship and declare the excellencies of the one who took you from being 
not my people, and not receiving mercy. To chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, and a people that belong to God. Are you stunned that that's true of you? Now, some of you aren't stunned that it's true of you. You're kind of annoyed. Because you really don't want to be here and you really don't want to do this. But let me let you know another secret, friend. That may just be indication that you're really not one. I know that's blunt, but I won't let you go to hell without me trying to keep you from going there. If worship doesn't appeal to you, the problem is not the way the service is done. The problem is your own heart. If you can't declare his praises, if there's nothing in you that has an answering echo to that, when you hear, declare his excellencies, and you go, eh, well, whatever. May God have mercy on your dead soul. One brother said it this way, the spiritual worship has no earthly altar or ark. It has transcended the elaborate ceremonies of the Old Testament worship. It's vain to imitate in pageantry the ceremonies that ended when the veil of the temple was torn in two. Yet worship remains the central calling, not only of the Christian, but of the Christian church. The worship of God consists not only in hearing and responding to the Word, as Peter has reminded us, it finds its burning focus in the name of God in adoration. The function of the priesthood cannot be delegated. God's praises must rise from the lips of all His people, assembled before His face, joining with the festival assembly of the saints and the angels. If the singing and speaking forth of the praises of God are viewed as preliminaries to the sermon, the meaning of worship has been lost. Lost. My friend, I ask you, have you worshipped today? From the moment of the call to worship, that picture clothed in somebody else, someone else's righteousness to the singing of that glorious salvation is he worthy to hearing the word and saying the word of the apostle Paul about our identity and being a temple built unto the Lord my friends, as you hear those things, as you say those things, do you, do you for a moment lift your eyes above the mundane around you and see heaven? And he who is seated upon the throne and the Lamb and living creatures who cry out day and night, holy, holy. And the multitude no one can number 
worthy is the Lamb. What we do here is not slight. We have come unto Mount Zion. We have come to the very throne of God because the Son of God, by His living and dying and resurrection, has opened the pathway. And we, who were not a people and had never received mercy, are now His and have been granted mercy. Oh, that we would declare the excellencies of Him. In a few moments we will take, we will physically demonstrate this glorious grace. Not by elements becoming anything other than what they are. You're still holding a cracker and a little cup of juice. But those mundane things symbolize a reality that is the anchor point and center and foundation of our very living. After that, we'll sing. And the singing isn't an invitation hymn. The singing is our response to what God has shown us in His Word and this day in the taking of the Lord's table together. Oh, my friends, let us never treat as a slighting thing something so weighty and extraordinary. You're chosen. You're royal. You're a priest. You're holy. And you belong to Him. Let's pray.